1: Hi, I'm Madeline Davies, host of Jezebel's Dirtcast. Dirtcast digs deep on the shallow industry of celebrity gossip, giving you an inside look at how famous people, publicists, tabloids, and even Scientology come together to create the celebrity news
2: you love to hate. I saw criminal activity and even one death that were covered up in order to protect the church.
1: You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Prachi Gupta, senior reporter at Jezebel. And Joanna is out this week. So we've actually got a really fun and exciting co-host. Kelly Stout is joining us.
1: Hi, I'm Kelly, Features Editor at Jezebel.
3: And this is Kelly's first week back at Jezebel as Features Editor. It is, yeah.
1: Excited to be back been previously doing investigations. And um, now I'm here to just let everybody off the hook. No more investigations.
3: Investigations are over, especially Mm -hmm. now. Nothing to investigate. Just kidding. (laughs) These are all just jokes. So this week, the Trump administration through the Justice Department announced that they are going to start investigating racism at colleges and universities and school. And by that, I mean racism against
2: white people. We're going to get the latest now out of Washington. New reports that the Justice Department is planning to investigate whether university affirmative action programs are discriminating against white students.
1: Furthermore, I don't understand why this is the push when the Civil Rights Division was set up to address groups that have suffered systemic oppression in this country.
0: That raises questions about whether career staff in the Civil Rights Division will begin leaving the Justice Department rather than staying
1: on and carrying out a mission that has gone upside down from what it used to be. Um, The Supreme Court has already ruled on this. We've been down this road before. Universities have a right to want a diverse student body. So the Supreme Court ruled that they're allowed to take race into consideration as they're uh, evaluating applicants.
3: And also just Good luck to the Justice rate, like, Department. Rate, like racism. Yeah, like, I mean, that's
1: <laughs> like that our legacy the...
3: of slavery and not allowing like black people into our education system that happened. Affirmative action was a way to counteract that. I know that Kelly and every listener already knows this, but I have to sometimes recount these basic facts about our history because I feel like I'm losing my mind because clearly nobody in the Trump administration knows any of this.
1: So that was the like Supreme Court's rationale for this. Of course, everyone already knows that the Supreme Court's rationale for declaring something legal or not legal allowed under the Constitution or not allowed under the Constitution doesn't always have to do with, you know, what is essentially right. So it is essentially right to recognize that this country has treated black people Non white people terribly for centuries. And to make up for that by evaluating race and college applications is like the least we can do. Right. But this week we're speaking with Carrie Ann Lucas of ADAPT, a grassroots disability rights organization that played a major role in blocking Trump care. She's also running for office. So we'll talk to her about that. The
2: cuts in the Senate bill in particular are particularly draconian to disabled people because they attack Medicaid. But first, our week in weenies.
1: Great week for weenies. It was really a banner week for weenies, led by Anthony Scaramucci, who lost his wife, lost his job, and lost his Trump this week. White House
0: Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci is gone a mere 10 days after he arrived, and four days after he trashed then White House Chief of Staff, Reince Priebus, in a now famous interview with The New Yorker. I want to read part of what Scaramucci said to you, quote, Reince is a blanking paranoid
3: schizophrenic, a paranoiac, he said. He channeled Priebus as he spoke. Oh, Bill Shine is coming in. Let me leak the blanking thing and see if I can blank block these people the way I blank blocked Scaramucci for six months.
2: He um, compared himself to Bannon and he said, I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to blank my own uh, expletive. I'm not trying to build my own brand off the blanking strength of the president. I'm here to serve the country.
1: Prachi, do you feel sorry for him? No, not one bit. Yeah. I saw a lot of tweets about how sad it was that he wasn't present for the birth of his child. And while well, that's
3: but like sad. Like it's sad, but it's his own damn fault. Like yes. <laughs> it's sad in the way, I mean. He really made his bed.
1: Now he has to lie
3: in it. It's incredible to me how many people in this administration are repeatedly let off the hook for being their own incompetence or their own decisions, find them in terrible situations. And people seem to divorce this like thing that's happening to them with their own actions. And nobody affords that to anybody outside the administration. Like, it's incredible to me.
1: Here's a question nobody's asking. How nice would it even be to have Anthony Scaramucci at the birth of your child? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like imagine you're giving birth, you're like in pain and the mooch walks in. No, thank you.
3: That's a very good question. So other questions, what is the mooch up to now?
1: Well, he is on to be the best man he can be. I think that's great because that is also what I'm going to be doing with my time now. Um, So I guess I'll see him at my bar class. (laughs) Looking forward to that. Looking forward to getting to know the mooch better at wellness seminars.
3: So our second weenie of the week is actually, surprise, it's Democrats. What? Specifically Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chairman Ben Ray Lujan.
2: Tell me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are.
3: Who recently told The Hill that there is no, quote, litmus test for Democratic candidates. And basically to cast a wide net, they are considering candidates who oppose abortion rights who are not pro-choice. It's such desperation.
1: He's like, as long as they're Democrats and people will vote for them.
3: It's also like, what does it mean then to be a Democrat? Like if one, if you're basic in a world where we have one party that completely opposes a woman's right to choose and another party that is like, that's, fine as if this is some fringe side issue. I guess my question for this is, okay, then, so what is the litmus test then? Is it just like being having, alive, a, having, having a, a pulse? Like it's just, at this point, it's just having a pulse. It's being not a
1: Republican. That's the litmus test.
3: But then, but like, what does that even mean? What constitutes not or just, you're just not registered as a Republican, but I you truly still think believe the... in all Republican values. You could be like, I support Donald Trump, but I'm running as a Democrat and they'd be like, cool. Like
1: politics have become so partisan that the bubble you fill out on your voter registration form is all that appears to matter.
3: And there's nothing behind that. Like that doesn't represent, like the Democrats have a real opportunity to define their party. I mean, it could not be easier because you have one party that's just like, we're evil. We stand for all the bad things in the fucking world. And, then, and like all the Democrats have to do is like, yeah, we believe in human rights, and we're going to continue to support them. Also, and that's, a woman's like, right to choose has to been cut; like they can't, they just like can't do that.
1: This has been a pillar of the Democratic Party platform for so many decades that for them to now say, "Well, oh, like you know, not necessarily," is a little bit like a vegetarian saying, "Well, I eat chicken."
3: Look at our <laughs> la- their last presidential, sure <laughs> their last presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton, who's like. Women's rights are human rights, and human rights are women's rights. And now, like three months later, they're like, "Fuck that! Fuck women! No, they're not." And it's just okay. So what do, what do you stand for? And it's not even fuck women. It's rights. like,
1: oh well, like we can kind of take or leave this as a position,
3: right? It's what, hostility through it mean? Through I mean, what does it mean to be a Democrat? Essentially, is after this, like, I'm not sure if this is what they continue to go with. Like, because it wasn't just, I mean, it it was the both the Democratic, it was like the DCC had, but then backing him up in March, Nancy Pelosi said that, you know, this is the Democratic Party. This is not a rubber stamp party saying that many people in her family are not pro-choice, but they're Democrats. Like, it's a pillar issue. It's It's not a fringe issue. A woman's ability to choose what happens to her body is an economic issue, it's a political issue, it's a racial, like it's it's a fundamental issue in a in creating a family in a person's life. Like
1: one of the biggest choices that a woman can make in her adult life is whether to have children or not and when. Right. And this is fundamental to the Democratic Party. And so it's it's hard as like a Democrat to hear the leaders of the party saying, Well, it's not fundamental to us. I mean, as Planned Parenthood said, you know, like this is, Planned Parenthood is going to support whatever candidates are pro-choice. You know, if that means that this is becoming a splinter issue, like, I hate that. Yeah. I hate the idea that that we're going to have some Democrats who are sort of for this pillar issue and some who are against it.
3: Yeah. I mean, it absolutely 100% should be a litmus. It should be the lit, a litmus test. <laughs> what is the litmus test is now is what I want to know from them. What is their new litmus test? Must be able to convert Oxygen into carbon dioxide. Have a pulse. Did not vote for Donald Trump in the last election. That's it. Yeah. Congratulations. We now care you, about this now issue. you can run for office as a Democrat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Our third weenie of the week is a goodie,
2: Jared Kushner. When my father-in-law decided to run for president, I served his campaign the best I could because I believe in him and his ability to improve the lives of all Americans.
3: Oh, welcome back, Jared. Yeah, we're
1: happy to have him back on the pod. Jared Kushner told a bunch of congressional interns uh, that he didn't want a history lesson about Israel and Palestine. No,
2: yeah, okay, let's not focus on that. We don't want history lessons. We've read enough books. Let's focus on how do you come up with
1: I love this story in part because of the way that we all found out about this, which is, you know, he went in front of these congressional interns to talk about how great he is at his job, basically. Well, in part of his job and he, is
3: and to bring peace to the Middle East. Yeah, it's one like of the many part of his that course. he's doing as innovations— director or whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> also
1: responsible for, uh, like, managing the opioid crisis. I mean, he's really—the the man has a lot on his plate, and basically everything he has to do requires, like, a deep knowledge of the history behind the problem, no more so than the Israel and Palestine conflict. So it's hilarious for him to be saying, like, oh, I don't need a history lesson. Let's just move forward. So that was crazy, Part of why I like this story so much is that he uh, said it in front of a bunch of congressional interns. This was great because it was basically an extended infomercial about why not to leave. Uh, it's not going to leak uh, in the press, which would be very, very hurtful. So this audio that we just heard uh, got leaked to a friend of the podcast, Ashley Feinberg, uh, over at Wired. And obviously, we don't know who the leaker was. We don't know if it was one of the interns. If it was, though— props to that intern. I love this. It's
3: beautiful. This is beautiful.
1: I I love it so much. I hope that this leaker rises through the staff on the Hill and continues to leak. I, I love this story. This is great. Jared Kushner is such a weenie. I have this theory that Jared Kushner in all pictures has closed his mouth, but opened his teeth what? Yes. I love this. Yeah, this is, it's, you know, it's barely even a theory because I feel so certain about it, but I'm calling it a theory anyway. The man closes his mouth, opens his teeth to sort of like puff up his cheeks a little bit. I'm telling you, look at a picture of him. You'll oh my God, see you're right. I'm right. I just
3: pulled up a photo and it's like his smile isn't really a smile. It's just like a line across yes. his face that mm-hmm. splits open to reveal his teeth. So Prachi, do me a favor
1: and just do it right now with your teeth. Keep your teeth open, but your mouth closed and you'll feel like Jared Kushner. Yeah, exactly. You're doing it. Everyone, she's doing it and she looks
3: great. This is going to be my new signature look.
1: Yeah. And so part of my theory is that I've been doing a lot of research recently on wolf behavior. And this is something that wolves sometimes will do when they're getting ready to growl to seem more (sighs) intimidating to their foes. So... Although we only have Jared, Jared audio of this event, I can only assume that he was doing this with his teeth.
3: The man with the voice of a mouse, but the bite of a wolf.
1: Well, I think he would sort of like that.
3: Yeah, that's maybe a little too funny. Maybe just the
1: lips of a wolf.
3: The lips of a wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the bite of like a bed bug. Nice. I like it. <laughs>
1: And now joining us is Carrie Ann Lucas of ADAPT, a grassroots disability rights organization which played a major role in blocking Trump care. And also, she's running for office. Welcome, Carrie. Hello, how are you? Good.
3: So there were massive protests at the Capitol last week, and ADAPT was there, and you were also elsewhere throughout the country. You specifically were in Denver. Tell us about that experience and just describe that day for us.
2: Well, we had we had groups in three different locations in Colorado. Adapt in Colorado did, and then there were Adapt folks in in Washington DC and other parts of the country. But in Colorado, we had folks in in northern Colorado in Greeley. We had folks in Denver, and then we had a group that also went to Washington, D.C. I was not able to travel to Washington, D.C. because as a ventilator user, you have to give airlines 48 hours notice to be able to fly. So I was not able to fly out to D.C., which is why I wasn't there.
1: So what what did you do in Colorado? What was that day like?
2: We were doing actions outside of two of Cory Gardner's offices. We had some street theater happen. Since uh, Cory Gardner doesn't show up for town halls. He doesn't meet with constituents. And so when we were at his office, we had a cardboard Cory that has been making the rounds in Colorado since the actual Cory won't show up. So we asked the cardboard quarry our questions and voiced our opinions to the cardboard quarry. But that particular office closed up shop. The employees all left for the day, and they locked up, turned off the lights, and left the office. So they, not only does he not meet with his constituents, but his he won't even allow his staff to meet with constituents. So we did that most of the early day and then immediately turned in to C-SPAN and MSNBC to start watching what was happening in Washington, D.C.
3: Um, what impact did the protests that were not specifically in D.C. have on the final vote, do you think, and like, what was the significance of having all of those protests across the country on that day?
2: We were on the front page of newspapers across the country, off and on for weeks, and video of people in wheelchairs Being arrested is provocative. No! No, 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 When they when when police officers are ripping people out of their wheelchairs and hauling them down the hallway, or uh, handcuffing people in wheelchairs and, and putting them on 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 accessible buses to take them to jail, or as in the case of Ohio literally picking people up and throwing them out the door into a heap outside the door. Those are provocative images. And I think those images prompted other people in the community to say, oh my goodness, this is really serious. We also need to speak up and be making calls. I I think that there was an overwhelming number of calls that were, were made to our legislators on these issues. I think it also helped give some backing to the courageous, particularly the courageous women like Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski, who all along, along with all of the Democratic senators, who all along said, no, we are not going to harm our constituents in this way. This bill is harmful to the people that we were we were elected to serve. And and ultimately Senator McCain also. Came along with his vote as well, but I think the bulk of the credit really goes to those folks who've been opposing this day in and day out and been taking the flack um, day in and day out. Let's go back for a second
3: and talk about what ADAPT does and what you do within it and how, like, how long have you been with ADAPT?
2: So ADAPT is a is a grassroots disability rights organization with chapters all over the country. I have done stuff with ADAPT off and on for Nearly twenty years. I'm also an attorney, so Adapted engages in, a, in an enormous amount of direct action because we know it's very effective. I, I would represent people. I would pre- be an, a legal observer at actions. I would support more behind the scenes rather than being the people on the front lines being arrested. When it came to this action, it was different. A law license does me no good if I'm locked up in a nursing home or an institution.
3: So, what are the the issues? Specifically in the past protests in the sit-in that you were participating in in Denver that you were fighting for, what are the rights that you want people to know about?
2: The cuts in the Senate bill in particular are particularly draconian to disabled people because they attack Medicaid. Medicaid's the largest payer for long-term care in the country. Most middle-class people end up on Medicaid at the end of their life if they need long-term care. And most disabled people who need day-to-day assistance end up on Medicaid because it's the only payer that will fund attendant care that allows us to get out of bed, to help us cook our meals. I mean, for me, my attendant helps me get out of bed, take a shower, get dressed, helps me with grooming, helps me with breakfast. And then I go to work. Uh, And without Medicaid, I could not I could not work, so I am able to access Medicaid through a buy-in program where I pay a premium to access Medicaid because I work full-time. I'm an attorney. I work for the state of Colorado. I make a good salary. I have great health insurance through my job, but my health insurance does not cover long-term care. It does not cover the attendant care I need to be able to live in my own home and be able to go to work.
3: What kind of response have these tactics and these protests received from legislators?
2: It's been varied. We go to we go to our legislators' offices to meet with them to talk with them. We write them letters, we call them, we contact them, we ask for meetings and and we get them and, and it and it changes policy. But when people refuse to meet or refuse to talk with us, then we'll protest or, you're taking a position that is going to harm our community and cause my my siblings in the movement to be locked up in institutions and away from their families, and myself away from my family and my children locked up into institutions as well, we're going to protest.
1: In terms of actions do you have anything planned c- that's coming up in the future?
2: We beg for programs like buy-in programs that allow us to go to work and be able to keep Medicaid. We fought for years in Colorado to get a program like that here so that we can work and contribute to our communities and pay taxes and buy houses and buy cars and do all the things and reach that middle class lifestyle because then we and pay a premium to get those long-term care services that we need to be able to do those things. With the budget, there's discussions of of great cuts. Block block granting Medicaid is a disaster because even though we are a small number of the enrollees on Medicaid, people who use long-term care services, uh, we cost the most for services. So when they start cutting funds, our, our services get cut, which means we can't remain in our homes.
1: You mentioned block granting Medicaid. Can you describe for our listeners who may not know what that is, what that means?
2: Well, when they talk about block granting, they're doing a couple of things. One is they're capping the amount of money that the federal government will kick in towards Medicaid. And the second thing that they're doing is instead of paying that state, you pay a dollar, we'll pay a dollar, they'll say, nope, we're going to give you this pot of money. Do with it what you want. That's a concern to us because a cup for a few reasons. One is, is that healthcare costs are increasing. And they're increasing regardless of whether you're poor or whether you're rich. Healthcare costs are increasing. And cutting Medicaid is not going to stop the inflation in healthcare costs. Those costs will continue to rise. So it'll mean that there will be an effective decreasing pot of money to serve people who are on Medicaid. The, you'll have less buying power with the same dollars because the dollar number will then be static. In many states including Colorado, absolutely cannot afford to absorb those cuts in our budget. As it is, our legislators, our local state legislators work their tails off to ins- to balance the budget and to ensure that we have not had major cuts in Medicaid. They wouldn't be able to continue that if it's block granted. The other problem with block grants is that under Medicaid, a mandated service is paying for nursing home and institutional care. What is not mandated is paying for home and community-based services. So without those services, we then can get coverage, but only if we live in an institution, not in our own homes. It's cheaper to serve us in our own homes, absolutely cheaper to serve us in our own homes. But if they cut the services that allow us to have attendants come into our homes to help us get out of bed, to help us shower, to help us cook a meal, to help us clean our homes. If we lose those services, we're forced into institutions.
1: Are those institutions standardized in any way? Is there any kind of standard of care that they have to live up to in order to receive this funding? Or is it just really catch as cash can?
2: Institutional care is a place where so many people experience abuse and neglect. In the early 70s, Geraldo Rivera first made a name for himself investigating the abuses at the Willowbrook Institution. And that investigative reporting led to the closing of many institutions and, and the movement to, to be able to serve those of us with severe disabilities in our own homes. That said, there's still institutions that exist today that they still use shock treatment on the residents They torture their residents with shock treatment. In Colorado, we have a smaller institution serving people with intellectual disabilities. Just last year, we got reports that people were dying of abuse and neglect. People were killed because they were in need of medical care, and the staff ignored them and allowed them to die. We had people who had graffiti carved on their bodies as a form of punishment from the staff in those institutions. That's what happens in institutional care because you, you end up with, first of all, kind of a mob mentality among the staff. So while you can have really great staff, you also have people who should never be working those kind of jobs. They tend to be low paid jobs. There tends to be poor oversight. And the people who are in the institution have no power to be able to speak up and do anything about it so that's what makes me so terrified about the Medicaid cuts, because not only for myself, but I'm terrified for my two daughters, who are 18 and 27, who also have physical disabilities and intellectual disabilities, one of whom's non-speaking and one who has who has a very severe communication disorder. They would be unable to tell somebody if they were being abused. And And both of them are reliant on somebody to help them with every aspect of care from helping with toileting to eating to even moving from place to place so people like that are extremely vulnerable in institutions but even people without any sort of intellectual disability end up in horrific conditions in institutions and and abuse happens now my own grandmother was assaulted by a staff member, was sexually assaulted by a staff member, it was multiple times in a nursing home. Even though our family was in that facility every single day, the nurses knew it was happening and did nothing about it. That happens today. When you start moving tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands more people into institutions because of Medicaid block granting, the situation will be much worse.
1: Do you view Medicaid as a silver bullet for helping um, to stop abuse in institutions?
2: Medicaid is a pathway to live in the community. And when people live in their own community, in their own home, where they have control over who comes in and out of their own home, and they have the freedom to decide when they're going to eat dinner, what they're going to eat dinner, or, gosh, I want to go shopping today today. I'm going to go shopping today or I want to go to work today. I'm going to go to work today. When you have that choice, then you do not experience that level of abuse and neglect.
3: So just to make sure that I'm clear and I understand, all of these, you know, devastating issues that you're talking about, these are very real risks and effects of the repeal and replace bill on the disability community if it comes to pass.
2: And not just the repeal and replace bill. We're still at risk through the through the budget process. So, with the budget process, they may still try cutting Medicaid. And cutting Medicaid won't just affect those of us on Medicaid because most in most states, I think the state, Legislators, the local lawmakers, are very compassionate people. The problem is they're going to be facing very difficult budgetary choices. And I think in every state, everyone's going to feel the hit because these legislators are, are not going to say, okay, lock them all up right now. They're going to do their best to cut the budgets however they need to cut them in order to maintain these services. So everyone's going to see a decrease in funding for things like higher education, public education, services to veterans, infrastructure, things like repairing our roads and our bridges, all of those things are gonna be cut, not just Medicaid. We're going to see the impact across and throughout our lives, no matter where we live.
1: This is a more general question. Carrie, what do you want people to know about the disability community that people outside of it seem to misunderstand?
2: I think one big mis- misperception is first of all, we're just like people without disabilities. We have jobs, we have families. i I, I work full time. i have I have four children. I volunteer in my community. I'm running for office in my own community. We are as active in our communities as as people without disabilities. But we are able to do that because of programs like Medicaid because of laws like the ADA. We got educations because of laws like the IDEA. Those are, those things made that possible to be able to give us a pathway to be integrated in the community. And and that's what we want and what we're seeking.
1: So you're running for office. Could you tell us about your
2: platform? Well, I'm not a one-dimensional person. So while disability rights is incredibly important to my life, So, too, are things like having a safe community to live where we have clean water and an ample supply of drinking water, where we have where traffic isn't so disruptive that we can't get from place to place, that I want to have a safe community where my kids can still go to the park by themselves and be able to be, play, and be active in our own community. So those are all things that are also very, very important to me. And that's the case with all of us with disability, we have the same, the breadth and variety of interests that any other person has.
3: Well, Carrie ann uh, thank you so much for joining us. This was really illuminating, and best of luck with your campaign. Thank you. the best part of our show, where every week we take a minute to discuss how we're coping with this onslaught of stressful news from the Trump administration in a segment that we call How to Handle the Dicks. Kelly, how are you handling the dicks? I adopted a puppy.
1: That's how. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Big news. Remember how I was telling you earlier about all the research I've been doing on wolf behavior? Yeah. This is why. (gasps) She's really great. Her name's Louise. We have an older dog named Rosie. They're getting along pretty well. All I think about is dogs now. This is my whole thing. I've written about her like 3 times. I'm an editor so I like barely write and yet all the material coming out of me is about Louise.
3: Oh, Louise. She's pretty good. She
1: recently graduated from puppy class. That's how I'm handling the dicks. I Louise and I together. Wonderful. One of my favorite things about her is that she doesn't really follow politics. <laughs> So we don't talk about it. I hope it politics. stays that way.
3: I hope that she stays blissfully unaware of the news. I hope
1: so, too. She's pretty smart, though. What about you, Prachi? What are you doing?
3: Well, this weekend, uh, Joanna and I went to Politicon, which is probably the worst way to handle the dicks. Because <laughs> you you meet some of them up close. And um, did you? <laughs> We mostly stayed away. Ann Coulter was in the same room as us for a little while. Did you say hi? Yeah, I said hi, asked her for her autograph. I told her I'm a huge fan. We traded some tips on—God, I don't even know what—I can't even joke about How to be awful. Yeah, how to be (laughs) awful. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) Any other dicks spotted? Tommy Lahren was speaking there, but uh, I didn't see her— Mm. Um, no, for the most part, though, I guess and culture was kind of the big one. There were I did see a, somebody with a huge car that was all decked out in like Trump slogans and like said, like, all lives matter. And they had like a big American flag and then like a bunch of bunch of racist stuff and like, painted on the car. That was Prachi, a thing. <laughs>
1: can I give you some constructive feedback? You may. You didn't do a good job. Handling the dicks. I'm sorry. You, you dove right. headlong was... into a vat of dicks. <laughs> thanks for listening to Big Time Dicks. And thanks so much to Carrie and Lucas of Adapt for joining us. This show is produced by Levi Sharp and Gabriela Sierra. With editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. The episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then.